Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil alemin. Ve salatu ve selamu ala eşrafil enbiya'i vel mursalin. Seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ecma'in. Eid mübarak everyone. A'adahullahu ta'ala aleykum bil yumni vel fethi vel barakati vel afiyah vel qubul. So we've come to the end of this uh, little uh, journey that uh, some of CMC's lecturers and, and, and expert supporters have kindly uh, led us through over the last uh, 10 days, these Leyalin Asher, we have uh, reached now the culmination of, of the Eid. Uh, and it's uh, a good time to look back to see where this journey has taken us. It's a journey, I suppose, about a journey. The Hajj is a journey of a lifetime. And as we've seen, uh, it has layers within layers. It's not a simple thing to understand. In many ways, it's unfamiliar and enigmatic. But we know that the more we reflect on it and that we uh, listen to what our great scholars have said about the depths of it, the more we move into a greater respect. And this is Mimbab Ta'azim Sha'airillah. Whoever honors and magnifies Allah's rituals, this is from the taqwa al-qulub, from the piety of the hearts. So hopefully there has been some tashwiq encouraging people to make the niyyah to do, to do hajj and umrah, inshallah, because it is an extraordinary, unique, uh, transformative event. <coughs> uh, and we've been to various cultural places. I liked the... Uh, Janita Karic and her presentation of the traditional understanding of the, uh, the Hajj uh, from Bosnia uh, and the, the two uh, venturesome ladies in the 1960s, I think it was, who went on their own and slept in the desert. And one of them said, it was like having the whole world behind me. As I approached the Kaaba, there was more and more of dunya behind me, which I think sums up very well how one is supposed to feel uh, internally. Uh, also, uh, Dr. Ingrid Matson, with her understanding of uh, the piety of mothers and the role of mothers, because there's this strong matronal dimension, of course, with Hajar and Ismail in the foundation of the city, the, the validation of childbirth, the validation of the embryo. There's something quite characteristically Islamic about that. And, and I want to get back to this gendered topic uh, later on, if only because it tends to be the first thing that everybody asks Muslims because it's a superficial age and they see the hijab and they immediately think that's the essence of our religion and we need to be clear um, where we stand. <coughs> so we did talk a bit about the, the fact that uh, the five basic pillars of the religion are equally uh, incumbent upon uh, both of the genders, which is, in terms of ancient religious practice, an unusual thing. Uh, there's almost daily contestations on the Western Wall of Jerusalem with this women of the wall group, uh, uh, Jewish women who want access to that bit of what they take to be the Temple of Suleiman so they can pray where the men pray. And it's an issue that's been through the Israeli parliament and it's a kind of uh, frisson. Uh, because the Orthodox rabbis won't allow it. Uh, and also, <coughs> the uh, controversies in India recently, last year in particular, 2019, uh, the Ayapa Temple, which is in Kerala, is one of those Hindu temples that does not allow women of childbearing age to enter their precincts at all. Now, the, <laughs> the Kerala authorities are more or less communist, and the BJP Hindu nationalists don't have any say there. So uh, the, uh, the authorities said, 
actually women should be allowed in if they behave respectfully and as Hindu interpretations that uh, could be cited. But then Modi's government, the BJP, with the sort of conservative Hindus said absolutely not. And there have been riots and people have been killed just because the women want to enter the, the sanctuary. And it's a big pilgrimage, about five million people a year. But alhamdulillah, this is not an issue for us. Um, women can and do enter the Kaaba itself, the Holy of Holies, if they wish. And we saw the story of Hajar. So we see that even from a contemporary perspective, there's uh, a very interesting uh, gendered dimension to this. And, and inshallah, I'll get back to this at the end of uh, today's little session. Um, what we saw, and uh, Dr. Samir uh, in his presentation was very good on this, is that uh, the, the Haram, the great sanctuary in Mecca, is the uh, beginning of the Isra and the Mi'raj, the night journey. And uh, the beginning of that is, as it were, the Holy Prophet's accepting the name of Al-Amin, the trustworthy. And this is one of the characteristics that the Hajji has to acquire as he passes through the various stages of the Hajj ritual and the Hajj ordeal. Um, the, the person who is Amin is somebody who is of the fitra, human beings being naturally honest and naturally recognizing that honesty and uprightness are good things. Even if we don't acknowledge this, we feel guilty when we uh, are confronted with the evidence of our own moral failings. It, it's from the fitra. So the Muslim is the one man salima nasu min yadihi wa lisani. The Muslim is the one from whose uh, hand and whose tongue people are safe. And this is the essence of, of amana. Um, and this relates also to what we could say on the day of Eid is kind of the, the culminating consequence of a properly performed hajj, which is a healing uh, one of the du'as which we recommended to say on the day of Arafah, which is basically just prayers, um, is Allahumma inni asalkal afia. Allah, I ask you for afia, which means well-being, healthiness. In other words, being the right kind of thing in God's creation, being in right relation to other human beings and to the rest of creation. And it's very important uh, that we recognise when we're on Arafat the need to feel reconfigured and readjusted because that's the best day for du'a. Khairul du'a, du'a uyomi Arafah is in the sunnah. The best du'a is the du'a said on the day of Arafah. And even for those of us who've been fasting on the day of Arafah, which is our way of vicariously participating in, in the Hajj, it's a day of uh, of, uh, of, of afia and of healing. Uh, so we've noticed that behind each of these apparently enigmatic outward forms there is a, an indispensable lesson about how we need to be inwardly transformed. It's not just an outward journey from everywhere to the one place, which is the Axis Mundi, the centre of everything, and ticking off various little boxes in the Hajj manual so that we know we've done it right. Allah, inshallah, will accept that uh, that kind of hajj, but it's not getting the most out of it. Uh, and uh, the depth of it has often inspired some, some quite wonderful poetry. And as we've seen on this journey, often it's the poetry rather than the prose that gives us a sense of 
uh, the, the qualitative aspect of the Hajj and of a good Hajj and the entrancing nature of, of Allah's house and the great sanctuary. Um, one of my favorite uh, recent poets in the Middle East um, is uh, Sheikh al-Jamal, uh, Sidi Muhammad al-Jamal, who unfortunately died um, a very few years ago, who was the Imam of Al-Aqsa, who has this wonderful collection of poetry, Rawdat al-Haqaiq al-Shi'ariya, Garden of Poetic Truths. Um, which and it has there's an English translation, uh, and he has this long poem, Al Hajj Al Akbar, the greater pilgrimage. And here the greater means that there's an inward as well as an outward journey. So just to remind ourselves of the essential nature of this, the Hajj is not something flat, but is contoured. It's not at the surface, but it, it does deep things to us. Um, just a, a nugget. I answered the call of my beloved the face of the pole of guidance always in front of me. Truly love carries the consciousness of guidance. I stood there in the presence of truth when a breeze touched me on the mountain of mercy, Jabal al-Rahmah. Ardent desire drove us to the sanctity of truth. There I was present, my tears keeping me awake till the break of day. Whence I sped to Muna in love, so he's talking about Arafat and, and Muzdalifah, holding onto the image of my original face back to the fitra, back to how I need to be, the hajj as reparation. I went on to the casting of stones, aiming at mercy in my beginning. So through throwing the stones, the seven deadly sins come out of us in this cathartic way. Uh, after that, we hope for mercy. How beautiful is this beauty that shines from what I hold. I completed my pilgrimage as the sun arose, sensing that from that now my form is true to its origin. So he too has the sense of the Hajj as a journey to the centre, but also a journey to the origin, which is one of the meanings of, of the black stone. I descended to Mecca to give the pilgrims a drink. I drank from Zamzam till I was intoxicated. My heart did the turn around the house of Allah, increasing its yearning to return to its original colour. I kiss the Yemeni corner in which my truth is. And now whenever I turn, I see that I see him. At the black stone I lay my hands. This is a ritual for others, but for me it is a renewal of the covenant. Um, and so on. So it's a, an indication, poetic rather than formally doctrinal, of uh, the inward transformation, the washing clean that happens as we go through the outward forms. And it's important to grasp this. The Hajj is not just a kind of theatrical uh, series of symbols that remind us of how we ought to change, but it actually helps us in the process of changing. There is something in the Tawaf and the Sa'i and the Arafat and the stoning that actually doesn't just symbolize a transformation, but is uh, a cathartic contribution to that transformation to the extent that we're sincere and we're real in the Hajj, we will be transformed. And one of the most interesting things you can see uh, on the Hajj is how people change from the beginning to the end. I used to do the Hajj when I was living in, in Jidda um, with a, a group of bankers. <laughs> uh, and uh, on the way from Jidda to Makkah, uh, everybody was kind of arguing and who's got the water and did I pack this and why haven't you got that and which madhab and it was kind of Muslims arguing. And then the shattering experience of the Hajj and the one tawaf that takes an hour and it's like running the marathon except 
you have to finish. You're not allowed to drop out. It's your hajj. Uh, and all of the rest of it, and the crowding, and the shuffling, and the stamping, and the huge Nigerians with sharp umbrellas, and the Turkish women from the villages who are so kind of tough that if you bump into them, you get bruised, and the bruise stays there for, for a week. It's, it's an ordeal, and it's meant to be like that. It's not tourism. It's supposed to be hard. And then at the end of all that, uh, the bus takes us back. Nobody died, alhamdulillah. We were, we were all there. And people were offering each other things to drink and were taking an interest in other people's stories and were finding out about... They were really transformed. Even bankers. That was pretty good. <laughs> I knew a uh, non-Muslim guy, uh, lawyer, in Jeddah, who converted in order to marry a Muslim girl, but you know, drink in his house and dogs and not really into it. But he said, one year, well, I've got Muslim in my iqama, my documents. Uh, I'll do the hajj. That'll be really cool to see Mecca. I'll go to Mecca. Uh, and so he goes and his wife thinks, well, she's not religious particularly. When he comes back, uh, he's got the tasbih, he's learning Quran, he's changed. His wife was horrified. She was so secular. She said, I don't want a fundamentalist for a husband. <laughs> they didn't divorce, but it was, it was very interesting to see that very sophisticated, high-level Western uh, barrister uh, really shaken up by the Hajj. And how that works, who knows? But the point of the Hajj is it doesn't just teach you about religion, but it changes you with religion. And uh, that's one of the most beautiful and moving things that, that, that you can see. So... Uh, the Hajj is the enactment of renewal, of rebuilding, and of healing. And what's important about this is that it isn't just an ascetical exercise. How many times can my toes take being stomped on? Uh, the Jamarat are kind of lethally dangerous. It's um, scary. Um, it doesn't just teach us renunciation and patience, sabr, but also compassion and empathy so that you don't get angry with the people who are jostling you or think ill of them or think ill of the people of Mecca or of anything or anyone. You have a duty to show patience and to respond excellently. And this is the real meaning of al-hajj al-mabrur, which is an odd expression, um, but it, it, it's in the, the sunnah. We ask for the Hajj Mabrur. Bir is goodness. So the Hajj to which goodness has been shown. Uh, it's the Hajj in which goodness, Bir to others, has been made to triumph. You won't achieve this Bir, this goodness, until you spend uh, something of what you love. Uh, and in one of the dictionaries I found this morning, um, Hajj Mabrur is one characterised by the giving of food and by sweetness of speech. This is one of the medieval dictionaries. So it doesn't just mean ticking the boxes of the fiqh. You have to do that. But it means something ethical. So the Hajj presents itself as a spiritual journey that is necessarily an ethical journey as well. And all of the jostling and the stuff is part of that. It's not something that it's meaningful really to complain about. Hajj has always been shattering. And Allah helps people um, to, to go through with it, because it is an ordeal. 
one year I was on Hajj with this young American convert. He was like 20 years old, kind of skinny. And we went for the Tawaf al-Ifadah, which is like all three million people in there at once and going around, and it takes an hour to go once around, and uh, it's shattering. And we were on the outer bit. I'm kind of walking nicely, uh, not going into the, 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 the pressure of, of the centre. And I said, whatever you do, don't try and kiss the black stone, OK? I know it's your first Hajj, don't kiss the black stone, because that means you have to get past the rows of the Turks and then the Afghans, and then it's, you, won't, you won't make it. Um, so eight hours later, uh, he turns up again. So guess what? I kissed the black stone. So I kind of shut up after that. It's an obligation. Allah says you should try to do it. Don't, don't tell people not to do it. But how that was possible? He said, just kind of opened up. Kind of easy. What's, what's the issue? Okay. <laughs> so uh, offering people advice, because you've done the Hajj before, is another thing that you need to be careful about because the ego can get off on that and, and Allah takes care of the guests of his house. So uh, there is the element of purification. You sweat it out, you throw away the stones, um, you purify your will of anything that really is interesting about dunya uh, and you are faithful. Uh, let them then, this is on the, 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 the day of the Eid, put an end to their unkemptness. Oh God, I can brush my hair again. Uh, um, and let them fulfill their promises, their pledges, because people make pledges on Arafat, I will free a slave, I will whatever. Um, and let them go around the, the ancient house. So there's a sense in which there is a purification and the day of the Eid which is you know, the sacrifice is also um, a time uh, where the purification uh, comes to its conclusion and the ihram really is a kind of consecration and it's one of the, the tough aspects of, of the Hajj it's not easy to wear ihram for day after day um, so what I want to do today um, is to look at things from a slightly different angle, uh, not the way in which the Hajj and the sanctuary have impacted the cultures of the Muslim world in so many uh, deep and, and delightful ways, but to consider ways in which it has, as it were, anonymously impacted the culture in which we live in the modern West. Um, Western Christendom, historically you'd thought, wouldn't have anything to do with the Meccan sanctuary, despite Adam and its the Mathabata Linas, a place of resort for mankind, a sanctuary, the West didn't look at it. And they had these weird images. They thought in Mecca you could see the coffin of the Holy Prophet suspended by magnets. And everybody in the Middle Ages thought that was what it, what it was about. Very um, profound ignorance. Because after all, whenever they came across Muslims in Sicily, Spain, wherever, they would just, the Inquisition would just ethnically cleanse everybody and they didn't get a chance to learn anything. Nonetheless, so enormous a spiritual vortex, so powerful a, a fountainhead of blessings as the Meccan sanctuary inevitably is so powerful that it 
it transforms beyond the formal limits of the Darul Islam and goes into other ummas as well. Uh, and there's a number of ways in which this, the fact of Mecca, the Kaaba, the Black Stone, the Ishmaelite sanctuary has been in European culture. And one of the best known is, of course, uh, in Dante, the greatest of the medieval European Christian poets, whose Divina Commedia is one of the monuments of world literature, uh, which is about Dante visiting heaven and hell in the company of uh, an angel or um, Beatrice, his uh, muse. Uh, and then in the 1920s, along comes uh, an obscure Spanish priest, Miguel Asini Palacios, who's an Oriental Studies person, and he publishes a book called La Eschatologia Musulmana in la Divina Commedia, Muslim Eschatology in Dante's Divine Comedy, in which he says, this story, going up through the seven heavens, isn't in the Bible or in early Christian literature, it comes from Islam and the narratives of the Mi'raj. And here it is in Sahih Muslim and Sahih Bukhari, and there you can see Dante is picking up those stories. Outrage, of course, you can imagine uh, Italians in particular in the age of Mussolini not being very happy to be told that their key story, the, the foundation of their national literary pride, actually comes from Arabia, from Mecca, from the Prophet, from exactly the opposite of what Europe is claiming to be, non-white, non-Christian, Ishmaelite, unchosen. Uh, but Palacios did his work very meticulously by working in uh, manuscript libraries. And um, so he, uh, this is the English translation of his book, and uh, in the introduction, um, which is written by somebody else after the polemic um, began. The balance of opinion. Did, did this poetic story come from Mecca originally? Is strongly in his favour. Apart from a score or so of adverse critics, mainly of Italian nationality, whose attitude is to be accounted for on the grounds of national or pro-dente prejudice, an immense majority of critics of all nations whose competence, whether as Romance or Arabic scholars, and whose impartiality are beyond all question, has opted in favour of Asin Palacios's theory. So, we don't need to go into Dante today, uh, but it's important to recognise that the baraka of the Haram in Mecca is so enormous that the rays shine even into Europe and produce through various refractions, who knows what the intermediaries were, Palacios thinks probably through Spanish Muslim accounts, but maybe through Sicily, hard to, to verify, uh, that the light shines and uplifts medieval Christian literature to hitherto unachieved heights. Uh, so that's one example. And of course, this is the Med Middle Ages when Islam really is the global superpower and the Dar al-Islam is 10 times as big as Christendom. And all the best things come from Islamic world, the Islamic world, the textiles and the best honey and sugar comes from the Islamic world. And even Morris dancing in England is Moorish dancing and medicines. And it's, the Islamic world is, is the center of civilization. Uh, but on the spiritual level, this is also necessarily um, percolating the blessings of the Holy Prophet and the blessings of the Meccan sanctuary and the Mi'araj 
transforms European literature. But what I want to look at uh, today, um, as we bring this little series to a close, is another story that's perhaps less well known, um, which is uh, uh, the impact of the Macken Sanctuary on the operas of Richard Wagner. Now that sounds very bizarre. Wagner, the student of Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Fichte, uh, all of the, the bad German philosophers, a nationalist, somebody who's pushing away Christianity and trying to go back to ancient uh, Germanic gods, Odin and Wotan and all of those hairy grey deities with hammers. And, uh, and of course, um, that becomes an important strand in the evolution of German post-Christian nationalism. So how could the light of the Kaaba have gone there? is the question. Well, um, Wagner's... I'm not going to be talking about the music, in case you think that I'm suggesting that all Muslims should immediately buy tickets for Covent Garden and Bayreuth and go and listen to Wagner's Ring. I wouldn't recommend that. I'm not talking about music and those Masa'il. I'm talking about the libretto, the story, the words, um, the, the meaning of, of, of the opera. Uh, but we know that one of his favourite operas, uh, Tristan... Uh, Und Isolde, which is a rather dark love story, clearly comes from the medieval Persian Sufi romance of Vis and Ramin. And by this time, things are being translated and Hafiz is available and has already influenced Goethe, and that's not particularly startling. Um, but uh, what was, <laughs> what was a, a controversy in Germany in the 20th century, and it shows you how politicised scholarship readily becomes, is that when the Nazis are around and they use Wagner as the symbol of the essence of the German spirit, uh, and they like his anti-Semitism and his paganism, uh, uh, when they find that there are Middle Eastern stories in his operas, of course the Führer and Goebbels are going to be uncomfortable seeing something that isn't actually from the dim forests with various hairy gods throwing hammers at each other, but from the Middle East, from, from the Orient, they create a new branch of scholarship in order to show that, well, yes, we can't, we can't deny that there are Middle Eastern stories behind many of Wagner's operas, but ah, they are Persian, they are not Arab, because in their mindset, Arab meant Semitic, so it doesn't come from Muslim Spain or Sicily, it comes from the Persians, who are Aryans. So you have these theories that, that look for all of the... Th place names in Wagner's operas in obscure hills in Afghanistan, and it becomes very uh, very frantic. But it's indicative, again, as with the Dante question, how, how grumpy Europeans become when told that their greatest monuments of art um, actually are bathed in the light through various refractions of the, the, the Meccan Haram. Um, and Wagner, in many ways, a kind of modern person who is ambiguous about the future um, in his sort of chromaticism and, and, and uh, imperfect cadences. You get a sense that unlike the medieval sounds where everything comes to a happy cadence and a close and you can sit down and the musical stories come to a happy ending. With Wagner, uh, it's always an incompleteness that's then followed by something new, which he took to be the nature of modernity, which is still our reality. Our values on sexuality and various ident identities are different to what people thought in the liberal West 30 years ago. 
And in 30 years' time, it'll be different again. It's a kind of constant process. There's no closure. There's no resolution. And he saw that as being the essence of, of the modern identity, which again makes it hard to think, oh, how, how does Mecca and the Kaaba get into this? Um, so, incidentally, um, Wagner's music is used quite a bit um, in one of the most amazing films about the tragedy of modernity that's been made recently, which is a film by Lars von Trier, the uh, Danish director, most of whose stuff is quite appalling, really, a very troubled person, but knows the importance of religion, uh, which is this film Melancholia, which is about the modern condition, the modern world, where are we? Uh, and the story is about two sisters who are from a very wealthy family, and one of the sisters is having her wedding because she's suffering from depression, and she thinks that if she gets back to some sort of tradition, even if it's just the outward forms of the wedding, the wedding dress, cutting the cake, she'll feel better because she's connected to something in our postmodern world. And uh, so she represents the principle of depression, and the other one represents anxiety, which are the two kind of goddesses of um, con the contemporary pantheon of, of moods and depression is out of control, uh, anxiety out of control. Uh, and the basic story is that um, the world is coming to an end. And in von Trier's story, it's about uh, a uh, asteroid impact. Uh, and everybody knows, well, this is a great wedding party, but everything's coming to an end. Of course, what it's really about is climate change and the awareness of a materialistic civilization, which had promised that through the churning and the exploitation of matter through clever technologies, some kind of utopia would be produced. But in fact, we're wrecking everything. And this is the condition of, of the elites nowadays, enormously wealthy in a kind of Belshazzar's feast kind of way, but either anxious or depressed. So it's not a kind of film to watch if you're feeling down yourself, but it, it's one of the greatest recent statements of the, 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 the sad paradox of secular modernity, trying to find hope without God. Anyway, back to Wagner and the opera. Um, the one I want to talk about is his last opera, which is his kind of religious opera, which is Parsifal, uh, which is, looks like a kind of Game of Thrones, Dungeon and Dragons thing with knights and uh, uh, witches and uh, magic castle. Um, uh, but turns out to be hugely significant for our purposes. And um, uh, inshallah, you'll be patient with me as I explain why this narrative is important, because it represents really the last great artistic moment in Western European civilization when a sacred story is taken seriously and advocated as a kind of solution. And the basic plot is the search for the Holy Grail. Nowadays, that's out of anybody's cultural horizons. Uh, one of the most uh, holy ideas and ideals of pre-modern European humanity was to search for the sacred, which is represented by this mysterious object and Arthurian legends and so forth hinge around it. Now, of course, you just think of Eric Idle and John Cleese and Monty Python, and it's been deliberately profaned. One of the unfortunate things that Python and that generation did was to take the things that had traditionally represented duty, sacrifice, dignity, the church, the monarchy, the gospels, the grail, and to turn them into a kind of uh, object of ridicule, very counter-initiatic, uh, counter counter-initiatic. Um, 
Now, Wagner is not like that. He's actually recommending this idea of pilgrimage, a sacred journey, overcoming obstacles, finding the sanctuary. Uh, and he gets his story from a German, as you would expect, a 12th century poet, Wolfram von Eschenbach. And that's really the, the great fountainhead, at least of the Germanic tradition of the Grail legends. Um, Wolfram, uh, of course, in his poem, says, well, where do I get the story of the Grail from, the Graal? Uh, no, it's not in the Gospels, that's a bit embarrassing. It's not in the Church Fathers. Where does it come from? And then he offers the giveaway. He says, oh, I got this story from a guy from Provence, some wandering traveller, troubadour, um, who read it in an Arabic manuscript in Toledo. So he says this, and this is where the Grail story comes from. And in that manuscript, it explains how a stone came from heaven and in its sanctity transformed the world and represents a kind of spiritual vortex. And that's the Grail fame. It's not a kind of cup or a kind of Monty Python or later medieval image. That comes, comes later and in some other narratives. But for him, it's a stone that falls from heaven. And that's the basis of the, the Grail as, as Wagner seems to understand it. So, more embarrassment. This is going to be the greatest German opera and this nationalist Wagner um, who sees German unification lives, to be, lives until 1883. So it's this kind of age of Bismarck and the guys with the screwed-in monocles and the crew cuts and the spikes in their helmets and everybody's marching and talking about greater Germany. And he, he's, he sees that and is part of that culture. So he's not very happy that this Holy Grail thing comes from the Arabs. But he acknowledges it. So he has a, a letter to uh, somebody called Matilda Wessendonck, who he's um, courting at the time. One notices, I won't do the German accent, one notices, unfortunately, that all our Christian legends have a foreign, pagan origin. As they gazed on in amazement, the early Christians learned, namely, that the Moors in the Kaaba at Mecca venerated a miraculous stone a sunstone or meteoric stone, but at all events one that had fallen from heaven. However, the legends of its miraculous power were soon interpreted by the Christians after their own fashion by their associating the sacred object with Christian myth. So Wagner himself admits that this story that is building up as being the last gasp of a sacred narrative in European culture uh, is from the Meccan sanctuary. It's obvious. So Toledo, can we speculate about what might have been in that manuscript? Can we see, reading between the lines of Wagner's greatest opera, the outlines perhaps of a Sufi story? Almost all of the manuscripts that the Muslims produced in Spain were burned by the Inquisition, unfortunately. Those that we have tend to be ones that found their way to the Middle East or were put in monastic libraries for various reasons um, or were hidden by Muslims um, from the Inquisition, often cemented into uh, voids in walls. And they're still finding these things. So what did the Spanish Muslims make of the Hajj? It was obviously a long journey for them and difficult uh, after 1493 because they were living under um, the Inquisition, the Catholic monarchs. It was a kind of police state um, and really difficult. It had always been a long way. Now it was harder than ever. Well, we do have some Hajj narratives in the uh, surviving stories that the Spanish Muslims have bequeathed to us. A certain Nuzayla Calderan, who is from Avila, 
has a story which is actually in, in a manuscript in, in the Cambridge University Library in which she talks about her trip from Avila, which is in northern Spain, uh, to the Hajj. Uh, and she uses some very interesting vocabulary. So the Eid, she calls uh, una pascua. Uh, the Spanish Muslims tended to use a lot of Christian vocabulary um, in order to articulate their Muslim um, beliefs. So pascua means Easter, but the Spanish Muslims called the Eid Easter. And you find this quite a lot. Um, Romaria is a, a, a Morisco Spanish Muslim word for the Hajj or the pilgrimage, but Romaria literally means a journey to Rome, a Catholic pilgrimage. So it ends up being very <laughs> confusing and, uh, and strange. But uh, uh, this is what they do. So la poblacion, they say it's an obligation. Poblacion is actually Omra because Omra has the sense of building up population, so they turn it into poblacion. It is interesting to see how the vocabulary of Hajj is managed in these uh, um, manuscripts. So we have um, somebody called Puemonzon, who's also from central Spain, from Castile, uh, who is uh, Coplas de Alhichante. Alhichante, somebody's performing the Hajj. And he describes in this uh, Muslim Spanish the beauty of the Haram and how its lights... Um, are quite extraordinary and turn night into day. He says, um, in his period, I guess this is the 16th century, you, people showed the relics of the prophetic house in Mecca. So he saw the mill which Fatima used to grind corn in, and, and he records this. So clearly, Spanish Muslims, like any other part of the Ummah, have a relationship to the Hajj, but exactly what the manuscript was that provides the basis for the Parsifal story, um, we're, not, we're not going to know that. Um, the etymology is also important. What's this word, grail? Kral. There's various Latin and Greek possibilities, but they're fairly far-fetched. The nearest etymological basis for it is that it is actually an Arabic word, gharil. If you look in uh, Lane's Arabic lexicon, you'll find that it means a long spear or a lance. Doesn't sound right. But if you look at all the grail legends, you'll see the grail is associated with a spear. And we'll come to explain the symbolism of that in due course, which, which also becomes very Islamic. So it does seem that at some point this uh, singer from France, as he reads the manuscripts, um, had seen this word gharil, meaning a lance, and had assumed that it gets confused and it becomes the grail itself. But in a sense, the lance and the grail are two aspects of a single phenomenon, which, which Wagner shows at, at, at the end of, of his opera. So the opera starts... Hmm, uh, and it is a genuine explanation of the process of spiritual growth and the spiralling in from ignorance to truth, uh, from uh, multiplicity to unity, from nafs to ruh. Uh, it's a very remarkable thing, actually, to come from the, the late 19th century. And the, the medieval story is actually being respected, but it's not Christian. Um, as we'll see at the end, there's kind of resonances of Eucharistic things here and there, but it's really not a Christian story because Wagner didn't consider himself to be a, a Christian. So the curtain rises at one, uh, and this becomes Parsifal's first initiation. So there's three acts, and each one is an initiation. Uh, and the first one you could describe as the, 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 the knowledge of certainty, ilm al-yaqeen. 
Parsifal is presented as this beautiful youth who's been apparently separated from his parents and is brought up in the wild in a forest and he becomes an archer. So you could see echoes of the Ishmael story there if you really wanted um, because that's um, associated with Ishmael in, in the book of Genesis at any rate. Um, so the first initiation as we would expect, is to do not even with human beings, but with animals. So this, again, is what happens in the logic of the, the Hajj. Um, this is my nice Quran again. And, and you can actually order them um, from tradigital.de. They're in Stuttgart, tradigital.de. I don't have much to do with them these days, but I think the website will still tell you how you get hold of these amazing things. They also publish other things, such as um, a very beautiful one-volume collection of the khutbas of the Holy Prophet, وسلم, which I've never seen a book with Holy Prophet's khutbas in, for some reason, that they've done it. And, you know, they're all really short. <laughs> so if you want to give a present to your local Mulvi Saab with a very discreet, polite message, just give him this book, and inshallah, uh, he will take heed. Anyway... Uh, let's look at this principle of ihram, which is, seems to be echoed at the beginning of Parsifal. Surah Al-Ma'idah Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu la taqtulu sayda wa antum hurum O you who have iman, do not kill animals in a hunt while you are in the state of ihram. وَمَنْ قَتَلَهُ مِنْكُمْ مُتَعَمِّدًا فَجَزَاءٌ مِثْلُ مَا قَتَلَ مِنَ النَّعَمْ And whoever amongst you kills one of them deliberately, his recompense, his atonement, shall be uh, an equivalent value to the animal which he slew. Okay, so you already have to pay a price. But the verse goes on. يَحْكُمُ بِهِ ذَوَا عَدْلٍ مِنْكُمْ Two upright witnesses amongst you should... Um, um, bring about that judgment and should make sure it's done. Hadyan balig al Kaaba as a gift for the presence of the Kaaba, al Kafaratun, or alternatively, a Kafara, a penance, Ta'amu Masakin, feeding the poor, Aw Adlu Siyama, or the equivalent of that in fasting, Liadoka Wabala Amri, so that this person, this naughty pilgrim, should taste the wickedness of what he has done. Afallahu Amma Salaf Allah forgives that which went before. So in the Jahiliyyah, you don't need to atone for that. That's gone. And whoever does it again, Allah will take revenge on him. Allah is mighty and possessed of uh, the capacity to take revenge. Quite a, a strong verse about hunting in the Haram and in the state of Ihram. Now, as you go into the, away from the profane world towards the sacred city, you go through three stages. Uh, the first stage is when you put on your ihram, which is traditionally quite a long way from the city, maybe even 100 miles away. Al-Hulayfa, Yalamlam, Rabir, and those places. Uh, and then you recognise that the rules were different. You couldn't cut your nails or brush your hair or kill animals. 
for us, you know, you're sitting in your plane and a stewardess says, it's time to put your ihram on now and we'll be landing in 45 minutes. It's not the same experience. But back then, when animals were all around and you're on a Hajj caravan, uh, not being able to touch them, to hunt them, to eat from them, um, becomes an issue. And there's just five or six categories. Yuqtalna fil hilli wal haram in the hadith, which like uh, uh, a dangerous dog, al-kalb al-aqoor, and scorpions and so forth, which, which are... Um, uh, need to be killed and some of the qiyas from some of the ulama means that well a lion and so forth you don't really want them prowling around the hajj tents when there's children about but basically the principle is they are sacrosanct and therefore you have created the world's first wildlife sanctuary to some extent around Medina as well but certainly around Mecca so here is something uh, from one of my favourite books uh, one of my favourite hajj books certainly one of the first British Muslims to do the hajj Headley Churchwood, Mubarak Churchwood, really interesting guy who you know, studied to be an alim and he became a teacher in the Qadis College in, uh, in, in Al-Azhar, he used to be a, a teacher of Sira, and he does the Hajj in 1909. And back then there's no buses or planes or anything and he does the traditional thing of going in a donkey, it takes about 30 hours from Jeddah up to Mecca. Uh, so this is his description. As he gets closer to what he calls the haram or the sacred ground, a circle running several miles beyond the limits of Mecca is holy soil, and on entering it here, my guide signed to me that we should say the proper prayer. Touching his heart and forehead, he muttered the Fatiha and held his hands together as if to receive heaven's blessing. Then he said, Hen al haram, here is the holy ground. I followed his salute and purposely intoned the Quran verses with particular loudness so that he could say I understood the ritual. And then, some pigeons, wild doves and other birds were the first specimens of desert fauna I came on. They appeared perfectly tame and fluttered a few inches from our faces. Some sat on the hard stones and allowed the donkeys to go right upon them. Very cautiously, the Waqil let his beast round the little creatures, for no man will dare to kill a living thing here. It's a very interesting nuance that even as late as the end of the Ottoman period, this is being absolutely maintained um, as part of the ethos of the Haram. Once you go past those towers in the desert, you can't even uh, treat a sparrow on the road badly. A sparrow's in the middle of the road and it's used to being there because for a thousand years people have respected the creatures. You have to go around it. So it, that's when you really get the impression that you're in a different space. Now in the opera, back to uh, Parsifal, this is again what happens at the beginning of his journey. It's uh, the animals and ethics towards animals. So Parsifal appears on the stage and is this young man with his bow and arrow uh, but something terrible has happened because uh, somebody has shot an arrow and killed a wild swan. And Gornamans, who is the head of the Knights of the Grail, is shattered and horrified that anybody near Monsalvat, the sacred place, could do such a terrible thing. And he has this argument singing with Parsifal. Parsifal doesn't know anything, he's just a natural spirit. Uh, and he says, can't you see what you've done? He said, yeah, it was good. I hit it with one shot. It was flying, and I got it. He's, he can't imagine that there's anything wrong. 
then Gornomance is the kind of sheikh here, and is the guide for Parsifal, says, well, don't the birds sing to you gently from the branches? Didn't they welcome you tenderly? What has this faithful swan done to you? It was flying to its family, blessing the winds, didn't you notice? You just wanted to shoot your arrows like a child. And then, in many of the stagings, uh, Gornomance puts the the dead swan on Parsifal's lap, so he looks at it and he sees the blood and he sees it's dead. And then the light of moral discernment dawns and Parsifal is horrified and he gets up and he breaks his, his bow. And the point of this is that that's the beginning of moral discernment and it's like that in the journey of life. Uh, so what Wagner is telling us, which is what the Hajj is telling us, is that the beginning of the spiritual journey is ethical discernment. When we're really little children, little kids really love animals. But little kids are pretty selfish. When they cry, it's because they want something, not because the next baby in the pram wants something. They don't do that. They want something, so they yell. They're self-involved. But that can't go on into adulthood. Very often, the first initiation is where they see that animals suffer. So they see a bird with a broken wing. And a two-year-old is completely shattered by this and looks at it and starts to empathise. And empathy for animals is particularly important in the sunna. And they say that this, because it, this is because it's a pure empathy. When you sympathise with other people or do them favours, very often consciously or unconsciously it's with the expectation that they'll do you something in return. But if you nurse a pigeon back to health and it flies off, it's not going to do anything for you. If you throw a fish back in the sea rather than eat it when you've caught it, it's not going to help you out one day. So the idea here is that the beginning of moral discernment comes through our engagement with the forest, the animals, the, the birds and, and uh, the beasts. So Gornimant looks at Parsifal, who's just started to wake up. This is the first step towards the haram. and says, do you understand your sin? Where have you come from? Parsifal says, I don't know. Who's your father? How did you get here? What's your name? Parsifal said, well, I think I had a lot of names, but I've forgotten them. So at the beginning of our journey back to Haq, we had all kinds of things, but it's forgotten. We're in a state of ghafla, forgetfulness. Uh, and then he says, what do you know? You must know something. And he says, yes, I remember I had a mother. I definitely remember that I had a mother. And then Gurnamans brings in one of the weirdest characters in all of opera, Kundri. Uh, a kind of wild woman who seems uh, human but damaged. We'll see how that works. And Kundur actually is a Persian word. Kundru means lame or damaged in one leg uh, or ill-omened. This is the, uh, the dictionary definition. So again, we feel here that Wagner is working through a Wolfram back to some kind of Sufi story. Now, in the symbolism here, uh, this woman represents dunya. So dunya helps us along the pilgrimage of life and provides us with food and the stars rise and set and dunya is essential, we're part of it. But on the other hand, dunya is a two-edged sword because it also tempts us. So in Rumi's poetry, <coughs> very often the world is described as Pirizan, the old woman looks really great from a distance, and you get closer, uh, maybe not. You were uh, 
um, a royal falcon held fast by an old woman, which just means dunya in its sort of gravitational aspect. And one of the things that the Hajj is constructed to do, and that comes out very subtly in, in the Parsifal story, is the ambivalence of the dunya in which we find ourselves. In other words, <coughs> it is the source of our, it's our life support system, and it's full of beauty. On the other hand, it also presents us as dunya, in the other sense, with the possibility of the seven deadly sins and wandering in the wilderness rather than finding our way to the grail, the blackstone, whatever. Um, Parsifal then says, because he's trying to figure out ethics, not what is the good, he's not there yet, but who is good, just like a little child. Who are the goodies and the baddies, before you really know what that could imply? And Gornemans, to help him, says, your mother, she was good, she misses you. And this again, the, the child's moral awakening and the beginning of its awareness of, of the need of others is to do with the, the maternal uh, relationship. Uh, and then Kundri says, uh, your mother, uh, your mother is dead. Hmm? And Parsifal doesn't understand this, tries to attack her and is restrained and begins to flee from her. But then he says, I'm really thirsty, I'm dying of thirst, give me a drink. And Kundri is the one who gives him a drink. And the knight says, ah. the grail says, whoever does good, uh, uh, thus, whoever does good shall always vanquish evil. But Dunya says, I never do good, I just want to rest. Because the nature of dunya in itself is that it's kind of gravitational. Uh, it just wants things to be easy. Everything in the forest just follows natural laws and there's no upward aspiration, no possibility of transcending natural processes in order to be heroic or what we would understand as the principle of irada. Um, and then we introduce to another figure the, the, uh, the wounded knight Amfortas, who has a tremendous wound in his side and his groaning. The reason why he's in this state is because he's allowed himself to commit a mortal sin and because of his loss of the principle of self-control and will. The point here again is a pilgrimage is a collective effort. It's through witnessing others and experiencing the tribulations of others, helping others, learning from others, not going down the wrong roads that the others have taken, that you actually learn. You don't learn if you're on your own. A pilgrimage is always a collective effort. So the figure of Amfortas is the sinner, the one who has fallen and who is suffering. This wound can't be healed. And it's been caused by the ril, as we would say, the Arabic lance, uh, which is the symbol of irada, of will. So the grail, which is kind of circular, represents the, the, the mataf, the haram itself, which is the angels just doing nothing but praising God and the perfect circularity of eternity. Whereas the lance represents the linear, in other words, the need for, um, to, for effort, which is why the angels bow down to Adam and the, the knight is the one who holds the lance of irada because he can kill the dragon of, of the ego. So... Um, the, the story continues 
and the, the meaning of this first uh, act is that pity, the basic human capacity for empathy, is what makes us good. We don't learn about ethics randomly in a kind of dry ethical textbook, but through the journey of life, through getting dusty in order to serve other pilgrims. So pity makes us good. Act two is the time of Futuwa. So Parsifal has started to move towards the harem, as it were, and he's learned the necessity of pity, compassion um, on his way and not to be self-involved. But what he now needs is to uh, overcome his lower tendencies. Uh, and at this point, uh, the shaitan is introduced, mm, called Klingsor. He has his own magic castle, and it's very gothic. <coughs> uh, Klingsor used to be one of the Grail Knights, but has kind of fallen out of pride and is now out somewhere saying, I shall lead Bani Adam astray. Except those of your servants who are purified. And as we've seen, the Hajj journey is about the enactment of, of purification and the journey from self to spirit. So Klingsor is the master of Kundri. So the Shaitan is the master of Dunya in this negative, seductive, um, beguiling sense. Um, and uh, he is in a kind of abusive relationship. He's basically pimping her. Uh, so Shaitan pimps the dunya out in order to, to seduce people to get trapped into sin so they can be as wounded as the knight Amfortas uh, and he can kind of vicariously enjoy seeing them falling the way that he fell. It's a very sort of sinister and evil situation. Um, and he says, your next job, Kundri, will be to seduce Parsifal. He's heading towards the sanctuary, but you have to stop him from doing that. And when you seduce him, he will be my slave. Uh, and then Kundri goes to him um, in all her finery. She's beautiful. And this is where she names him with a Persian name. It's explicitly in Wagner's libretto, Fal Parsi, where she's telling him what his name is. Fal Parsi, according to Wagner, who didn't really he didn't know Farsi, means um, a kind of simpleton. Actually, Fali Parsi would mean something like the Persian augury. Maybe that was the original name of whatever text it is that's behind the opera. We're, we're not going to know that. Um, and she's trying to... She wants to seduce this boy, who's now begun his, his journey back to the centre, and she has to do it because um, otherwise the curse will, will continue. So she uses her womanly wiles, her cade, and she doesn't flirt with him directly, but goes in a kind of very gentle way to get his confidence and to say, I know about your family. Your father died in Arabia, Gamoret, and he was the one who named you. Parsifal. Uh, and then she describes how much Parsifal's mother loved him in order to make him listen. She's already kind of displaying herself, but he has to listen to this. It's his parents. Uh, and she says, before your mother died, and she died of sorrow because she couldn't find you. You ran off into the forest. She couldn't find you. And she died of grief. 
So Parsifal is completely discombobulated by this and uh, disoriented so she can make her move. And before your mother died, she told me to give you one thing, one gift from her, which is just a kiss. And so Dunya gets its arms around the pilgrim, kissing him. And what could be more innocent than a mother's kiss for her son? So Parsifal, confused, goes along with it. And then halfway through the kiss, Wagner changes the music and it goes into an enharmonic key and it's the same tune but it's really different. Instead of being the mother's kiss, it's the kiss of seduction. And the point that he's making here is Dunya always gets us by beginning us on our journey away from the haram and towards darkness in a way that seems to be natural and good. All of the deadly sins begin with something that seems to be fine. We desire food, so, but it can end with gluttony. We need to take a rest sometimes, that's halal, that can end in sloth. So the, the boundary between sin and virtue is often wafer thin. But at this point, uh, he cries out, Amfortas, he remembers what happened to the other night. And this again is how we learn morally. We see the misery of sinners and how they're constantly nursing this wound within them. They know, I cheated so-and-so of his inheritance, and I really feel bad about that. Uh, I sold that person the car knowing that his gearbox was rubbish. I cheated on my tax return. We accumulate these, these dark spots in our heart, as Imam Ali said, and eventually it becomes this wound that can't be healed except through the, the spear, which is irada and futuwa, nothing else is going to work. So because Parsifal has seen the suffering that this uh, 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 knight has experienced, he doesn't want to go the same way, so he's able to resist the, resist the seduction. Um, and then the shaitan uh, Klingsor appears in a kind of window in his castle, thinking that he's one, and throws the lance in order to get Parsifal to take him away from the haram forever. Parsifal reaches up and catches it. So the symbol of irada, will, is now in his hand. And that's the end of the second act and the second of the three stages towards, towards the haram. So we're nearly done. Act three, if act, act one, I guess, is about the beginning of knowledge, muhasaba, self, self-awareness. Many people never even get to that stage. And then it's about futuwa, which is the knightly chivalric virtue. Um, and then Act 3 is about Khilafa, about being the one to whom the angels can bow down. So Act 3 begins at this kind of desolate place. Parsifal has been wandering and he's slowly finding his way to the, to the castle of Monsalvat. Um, and this is where we realise that just wandering and following our impulses will not take us anywhere good. We have to have this irada, this will. We have to say labbaik, we have to put on the ihram, and we have to follow those prohibitions and those commandments. We have to overcome what the ego wants to do, and the more we do that, the better it will be. Those who struggle for our sake, we shall guide them to our paths. That's kind of the slogan of the, the hajj, if you like. The inward hajj becomes good to the extent that you really struggle. Like those amazing people who walk to Hajj from Dhaka or somewhere. That, that still happens. Presumably Allah gives them a good Hajj. So this irada, this strength, which is the knightly virtue of Futuwa, 
uh, is now represented by the fact that Parsifal holds the irada in his hand. And then Amfortas comes and is still bleeding, he's still remembering the, the zina that he committed with Kundri so long ago, he's still kind of bleeding at the memory of it, he's, he's damaged. Um, and the, the hero places the lance near him and he's cured. So when he has the capacity through irada to make a genuine tauba, that's when that pain finally goes away. But it won't go away through following other pleasures. It only goes away through tauba and through uh, a determination, because the tauba is only valid if there is the determination not to return to sin. So the, the curse which has fallen on these knights, because the haram is kind of in a state of disarray, um, is lifted. Um, and at this point, we are at a state where the world nourishes us and supports us rather than tries to lead us astray, which is the meaning of the fitra and why this isn't really a kind of Christian story about transcending the flesh and living in a, a monastic situation. What is important is to see the world correctly. So uh, Kundri, who has been transformed by the fact that she is subject to his authority and shows that Dunya is a positive thing, she's not evil after all, despite what she's attempted, washes his feet and heals him with the, the medicine from Arabia, dries his feet with her hair in order to indicate that the Dunya is completely the servant of the, the Khalifa. Uh, and the world itself can cleanse us. And so he raises up Kundri and points out how beautiful nature has become. They're not leaving nature behind when they get to the castle, but it becomes beautiful and, and nourishing. So a lot of people um, complain about this, feminist readings of the, the novel and the use of the Pirizan, the old woman trope. Um, but it's not... But Remember that here, it's being shown that in her seductiveness, dunya is really dangerous and leads to all of our wounds and our, uh, our distance from, from the sanctuary and from God and from being at the place of the alastubirabbikum. But at the same time, dunya is celebrated in the Qur'an and is something beautiful and has its own integrity. And there's a gendered dimension to this. So um, one of the great poems in... Rumi is exactly about this. She whose beautiful face makes man her slave, how will it be, indeed how, when she begins acting like his slave? She whose haughtiness causes your heart to tremble, what will happen to you, indeed, what, when she comes before you weeping? She whose disdain fills your heart and soul with blood, what will it be like when she comes to you in need? She who ensnares us through her tyranny and cruelty, what will be our plea when she comes before us pleading? Made attractive to men is the love of desires. Women, God has made her attractive, so how can men escape from her? Since he created Eve so that Adam might find repose in her, how can Adam cut himself off from her? Even if a man is Rustam and greater than Hamza, still he is captive to his old woman's command. 
The prophet to whose speech the whole world was enslaved used to say, Speak to me, O Aisha. Water prevails over fire because fire dreads it, but when the fire is veiled, it brings the water to a boil. When a pot comes between them, O king, the fire naughts that water and changes it to air. If, like water, you outwardly dominate over woman, inwardly you are dominated by her and seek her. Mankind possesses such a characteristic, but the animals lack love because of their inferior place. The prophet said that women totally dominate men of intellect and possessors of hearts, but ignorant men dominate women, for they are shackled by the ferocity of animals. They have no kindness, gentleness or love, since animality dominates their nature. Love and kindness are human attributes. Anger and sensuality belong to the animals. That's a famous uh, uh, section in, in the Masnavi of Rumi, which reminds us that these traditional characterizations of the femme fatale, the kind of Zuleikha phenomenon, um, the apparent superficiality of her charm, is just one way of seeing it, and that traditional hierarchies between men and women represent a kind of mutual superiority, not really the, the, the total domination of one by the other, unless you know, the man is not in keeping with the fitra. It's a very interesting passage. So the opera is coming to an end. Um, Parsifal says to Kondri, I saw them that once mocked me wither. Do they long for redemption today? Your tears too are a dew of blessing. You weep and see the meadows smile. So when Dunya submits properly to Bani Adam, not abusively, the way we use the world today and produce the outcome that Lars von Trier is talking about in his film, uh, the weeping of Dunya uh, causes um, radiance. And at this point, there's another kiss. He kisses her on the forehead because balance has been restored. So Gornamant says it's the tears of repentance that bless the world. So, and then very often, right at the end of the opera, it's, it's the convention for the lance and the grail to be reunited. So the, the lance is placed on top of the grail and they become a kind of unity which symbolises uh, the interiority, the feminine circular inclusiveness of, of the sacred sanctuary with the linearity of the principle of, of, of Moruwa. And again, this is a perfect representation of what we have in, in our sanctuary, where the mataf, the place of the tawaf, where the black stone is at the middle, is circular. And the nature of the ritual means that you can't really do it in any non-circular way. Uh, and then there is zamzam, the purification, and then this other principle, which is just as sacred, according to the story, which is the sa'i, between Safa and Marwa. So the circle is adjacent to the straight line, uh, the grail and the lance. And it's the same symbolism. And the uh, sevenfold tawaf, which is around the presence, inclusiveness, the veil, the feminine, and then the linear, the masculine, which doesn't end where it begins, because it's not about eternity, it's about world and irada, begins at Safa and ends at Marwa. Safa means purity. You've just come from the, the temple, from the holy spring. Safa, purity. And you end at Marwa, which is precisely Muruwa, manly virtue. And the end, the tip of the lance, is the point at which you go out into the world, not as a kind of random shooter of swans, but as somebody who's been completely transformed um, by, by this. So the sanctity, yep. 
on the day of Arafat, the Holy Prophet indicates to his Hajjis, the Sahaba, in his great final khutbah, what is happening here. That because of the principle of chivalry, the pilgrimage is not just about a crowd of people being alone in the sort of Neoplatonic sense, the flight of the alone to the alone, but it's a collective thing. And in Arafat, there is the sign of this, that just as they were together at the Yom of just as they will be together at the resurrection. So the Hajj is the sign that the Muslims are together, a single Ummah, all standing together, united in prayer. And you do get that extraordinary sense in the, the plain of Arafat of everybody being together, of a single Ummah, race, sect, you can't really tell what sect a person is if all they're doing is du'a. It's impossible to, to make the differentiation. It's very moving. So he says, إِنَّ دِمَاءَكُمْ وَأَمْوَالَكُمْ حَرَامٌ عَلَيْكُمْ كَحُرُمَةِ يَوْمِكُمْ هَذَا He's pointing out the fact of Muslim brotherhood. Now that they're purged and they're in the plain of Arafat knowing by the Mount of Mercy, he's standing there and says, your blood and your property are haram sacrosanct, taboo, just as this day of yours is sacrosanct. Fi shahrikum hadha, wa fi baladikum hadha, in this holy month and in this holy city. So the bond between the Muslims at the end of the whole Hajj story, as they move into the final sacrifice and the dispersal into their different clothes and back to their countries, is the reality of the unity of the Ummah, which is a reenactment of human unity, because we were all together at the day of Alas to be Rabbikum. And that's, that's the, the ultimate meaning of Arafat, which the Hajjis do feel in their hearts. And they think, if only the whole Ummah could always be like this. Always, Ibad Allah, slaves of Allah, just praying to him, broken by the heat and the, the difficulty of the Hajj after these days, just praying to him. And this is where the tears flow. It's very moving if you walk around Arafat and see how many people are actually in tears. Uh, particularly as the sunset comes closer, people stop playing with their phones, or whatever they're doing, and they stand and they pray, and it becomes the best prayer of their lives. And uh, it's the most beautiful thing that you'll see on the Hajj, even though people just do du'a, that's all you do on, on Arafat. And that's the reality of the end of the pilgrimage, which is not a kind of single person's private discovery of haq, but uh, the discovery of the other, the Muslim other, the believing other, the believing equal, and the importance of the unity of the, the, the Bani Ismail and the actual enactment of, of that thing um, in the uh, extraordinary uh, plain, plain of Arafat. So uh, there does seem to be a parallel, just to get back to my little bit of comparative literary criticism between the Muslim understanding of the meaning of the Hajj and the Parsifal legend. So um, it's fairly clear that there is a, a strong Islamic Sufi and Makkan, uh, Baraka and Fat in this work. Um, and it's a reminder again of the power of the sanctuary and the power of the Hajj that it's transformed, not just Europe's greatest poem, but also Europe's greatest opera and if one did the research, probably you'd find other things as well. The, the Haram is a real vortex, a real place of, of limitless lights, and those lights don't stop anywhere. So uh, the journey then from nefs to ruh, and therefore from selfishness to selflessness, and therefore human brotherhood and uh, togetherness, 
and that's part of the knowledge that Arafat conveys. Uh, and on this little CMC journey that we've had over the past few days, unfortunately, we can't go to the Haram. Uh, but uh, our intention really has been to remind people of the greatness and the profundity of this ritual. We haven't gone through the fiqh very much of, of the practice, but uh, if there's been in what my colleagues have said some energizing principle that has made people think, I'd like to go there, I'd like to see the Kaaba again, I'd like to touch it, I'd like to be in that unique place of closeness, I'd like to leave all my dunya anxieties behind and just be with the, the presence of Al-Haq, Ta'ala, that, that longing, which is the longing for the, the Watan, the, the homeland, then inshallah there will have been a blessing in this and this will not have been an effort in vain. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give to the Muslims everywhere the forgiveness and the unity that he grants them uh, at Arafat and inshallah continue to increase the number of hajjis and mu'tamirin um, from today ila yawmil qiyamah inshallah and forgive all of them their sins inshallah. Barakallahu feekum. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa aid mubarak. Support the next generation of Muslim thinkers by donating today at cambridgemuslimcollege.ac.uk.